the American Revolution in no way cements Locke as a political theorist or political thinker. The 20th century does cement Locke as a political theorist in American intellectual life. Lovely to have you on board, and welcome to another instalment of the New Work in Intellectual History podcast, an intermittent series, shall we say, produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews. I'm your host for this episode, Robin Mills, and you can find us on Twitter at St Andrews IIH, and our website is intellectualhistory.net. We have had a back catalogue of our interviews, also transcriptions, digitizations of lots of fascinating primary sources. Uh, now, the podcast aims to showcase the most interesting and stimulating recent work in intellectual history and the history of political thought, which is exactly what we're doing this episode by talking with Professor Claire Rydell Arsenas. Hello, Claire. How are you doing? Hello, Robin. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Now, Claire is Associate Professor of History at the University of Montana and the author of America's Philosopher John Locke in American Intellectual Life, published by the University of Chicago Press, which came out in October, I think, last year, 2022. So, Claire, I will transfer over to you. What is the book about? Uh, send it to us, please. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Robin. On its most basic level, my book is about Americans' enduring yet ever-changing fascination, preoccupation with the 17th century English philosopher John Locke. And Locke, I show, has always mattered, always been vitally important. Uh, in American intellectual life and culture, uh, but this importance and his his influence uh, has changed quite dramatically over the last 300 years. Very, very broadly speaking, I know we'll get into this more in our conversation today, Americans moved from understanding Locke in the 18th and 19th centuries primarily as an epistemologist, author of an essay concerning human understanding, uh, and in a very immediate presence in their everyday lives, uh, to uh, understanding Locke primarily as a political theorist, a political thinker, author of the two treatises of government uh, in the 20th century, and as a kind of much more sort of narrow, even as I call it, a kind of adjectival abstraction, if we think in terms of Lockean liberalism. And I think that these changes that I that I trace and that I chart uh, in, in Locke's uh, influence and, and, and importance for Americans, I think these reveal quite profound transformations in American thought, culture, politics, education across the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Fantastic. So yes, by tracing uh, the reception of Locke, you're tracing the American uh, changes in the American uh, intellectual culture. I suppose he's, <laughs> I want to get the Von Swanson thing in, like you mentioned. <laughs> on Swanson, the character in uh, the sitcom Parks and Rec, uh, Recreation, uh, that Locke is so well known he can be used as a a feed line in a, in a in a very popular American sitcom, which is you know not not many intellectuals, not many political theorists can uh, can be used in such a way. What prompted you to write it? What prompted you to um, uh, put this book together? 
I, I wish I could say it was Parks and Recreation, although I <laughs> watched that episode when I was already deep into my research and writing. Uh, I mean, I, you know, when I started this project, I had no idea that it would culminate in in, in a book uh, and in a sort of decade plus long investigation into Locke's changing influence in, in American intellectual life. Uh, I mean, my interest in Locke began uh, in graduate school when I was writing a seminar paper as one does in a PhD program. And I had gone in search of 19th century editions of Locke's two treatises of government uh, for, a for this paper I was writing. Uh, and so I was spending a lot of time in essentially a version of WorldCat, uh, not particularly exciting, but I was trying to get a sense of sort of, you know, when it was published and by whom. And one day, you know, pretty early into my research, I, I noticed that the two treatises uh, weren't published by an American press uh, across the entirety of the 19th century between 1773 and 1917. And this was uh, surprising, I think even shocking to me, uh, yeah. you know, because like Americans uh, who attended public school or are immersed in this American <laughs> pop culture, right? I mean, Parks and Recreation, just to give one example, right? We have sort of, we've, we've um, like we've learned, we've internalized that the second treatise is and has always been Locke's most important and influential work for Americans, and that it even lies at the foundation of and the heart of the American political tradition. And so as I was sitting there and, and, and sort of coming to terms with this publication absence, not absence as we'll talk about in, in, in an actual engagement, um, but this initial absence in publication information, I. I, I started asking questions and I started being very curious about things that I had never been curious about before. Um, and uh, uh, the, the book that I've, I've written is a product of these, these questions that I began asking about Locke's um, influence and the nature of his importance for Americans. I mean, you've, you've already touched upon the answer to this question, but what do you think we gain by uh, examining the reception of Locke in America over three centuries, it sort of it sort of pulls apart myths, or it, it exposes things that are taken to be fixed, actually to be historical constructions at certain points in time. Indeed, I think that's a very nice way to put it. I I, I hope that well, I hope that we, we gain several things. I I hope that we gain a, a a richer, deeper, more complete understanding of how and why past generations of Americans engaged with, with, with Locke um, and read and thought about and understood his importance. I also hope that we gain uh, a clearer picture or a clearer picture perhaps of, of how these past ways of engaging with Locke are both similar to and different from the ways that Americans in the 21st century uh, engage with, with Locke. And then I think on a, on a sort of more on a broader level, perhaps on a more meta level, I hope that we gain an appreciation for the payoffs of, as I said, asking questions about and being curious about even those parts of our shared historical memory, as it were, that we take most for granted, right? The place of Locke at the foundation or the heart of the American political tradition. And in my experience, this, this practice of curiosity uh, can can be quite humbling and quite illuminating. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I, I, just because I've done, not to the same standard as you, but I've done 
undertaking similar sort of research where you're tracing um, how readers over generations respond to a, a specific text. What is your, I'm sorry, off script here, but what is your day-to-day, -day, um, what's your day-to-day -day research life like? What were you doing? Because when I when I started doing this, I would do a lot of Google book search, a lot of Ebo and Echo searches, and you would start there. That couldn't be where you ended up. That couldn't be the end point. But you, yeah. But what does this, um, what does reception history look like in the 2010s and 2020s? Yeah, I mean it. It involves a lot of big picture reading. A lot of those kind of you know initial database dumpster dives where you're trying to get just a very broad sense of, you know, where is Locke appearing in the digital record that we have of the 18th or the 19th or the 20th centuries. And then using that as a entry point for finding the sort of pointing one in the direction of where one eye in this case need to be reading closely and deeply and immersing myself not just in the texts where I'm finding references to or an absence of references to no. Locke, but rather um, the thinking about ways of immersing myself in the intellectual worlds, the space that my historical subjects are occupying. And I think that it, it, it's, it's very much a back and forth of uh, you know, thinking about, you know, coming to terms or thinking about, you know, sort of what, how I understand and what I know about Locke and the things that I'm interested in reading for or finding, or that I might expect to find that I'm being surprised that I'm not finding or whatever it is. And then the, the process of really trying to understand the concerns and the, uh, the questions that my historical subjects themselves are interested in and mm. setting aside my present day or my contemporary uh, assumptions and, and, and perspective. And I think that because it's a combination of sort of all of these things, it makes for quite, uh, in, in my experience, a very exciting and very engaging and a never boring uh, and at times challenging process. <laughs> I yes. did lots of, spent many hours and many archives uh, not finding what I thought I would find or finding surprises. And I think approaching things really, as I said, with the spirit of curiosity and open-mindedness um, was it, uh, illuminating for me. Fantastic. All right, let's jump in then. So you open the book with Locke standing in early 18th century America, which is not as a political theorist so much as, quoting you here, a guide model and moral exemplar who taught Americans how to rear children, study scripture, and pursue a variety of activities related to improving both themselves and their communities. Um, can you talk us through that, please? That's a lot there. Uh, yeah. What did he mean to early 18th century Americans? Right. So across the entirety of the 18th century and even into the 19th century, Americans knew Locke first and foremost as uh, the author of an essay concerning human understanding, which was Locke's most famous work at the time. Uh, in this work, Locke you know, examines how humans gain knowledge about themselves and the world around them. 
but he, and so his reputation as a philosopher and as a as a thinker, as somebody who was sort of worthy of attention and consideration, this is very much grounded in and attached to his the authorship of an essay concerning human understanding. At the same time, and as part of this, Americans in the 18th century revere Locke, as you just said, as this everyday, very immediate guide, model, moral exemplar, a kind of guru for how to live a good life, both as an individual and as a member of one's community. And this takes a number of different forms and it appears in a whole variety of different places. One of the things that I thought was interesting was the way in which both men and women and across the North American colonies. So not just in New England or not just in the South, but really from you know the Carolinas up through uh, New York and New England, the, the ways in which uh, a, a range of Americans are uh, understanding Locke as having a very sort of profound uh, uh, relevance for questions that they're asking themselves that don't have to do with sort of big philosophical academic debates, but very sort of basic questions of how sh how best should I rear my children? Uh, you know, how how can I read the Bible effectively? How can I be a good friend, a good confidant? And this kind of engagement with Locke um, uh, was was a very key and a very widely shared experience of many early Americans, men and women alike. And as I show in the first chapter, one of the ways that we can access this, in some ways, very foreign and strange engagement with Locke, one of the ways that we can access this as 21st century uh, uh, readers and, 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 and people <laughs> is by um, going to individuals who leave behind in the historical record clear evidence of their, um, of their reading and their thinking with and they're thinking about John Locke. And these are people like uh, Eliza Lucas Pinckney, um, South Carolinian uh, indigo plantation owner, mother of founding father. <laughs> uh, and Eliza Lucas Pinckney in the, in the 1740s comes across Locke's essay concerning human understanding and spends a lot of time really grappling with, with what Locke's writing. But then she's also, as a mother, reading Locke's and thoughts concerning human education. And she has a very clear sense in the 1740s that she wants to raise her sons according to Locke's method and Locke's model. And she writes letters to friends in London, begging them to send her the proper uh, toys and, and tools <laughs> for um, fostering and creating this, this kind of education environment. And you know, this isn't some. This isn't a a, a person, a woman who's uh, in in a college classroom being quizzed in a you know philosophy course on epistemology or metaphysics. This is a a, a woman in the 1740s who is saying, you know, I, I want to raise uh, good children. How can I do that? And I'm going to turn to John Locke for advice and as as a guide and an exemplar for doing this. And I think there are a variety of ways in which we see. Again, I keep coming back to this element of sort of surprise and strangeness. We see young men, um, the future Harvard professor, Samuel Locke, who had, has no relation to John Locke, um, 
but but following Locke's method of commonplacing, commonplacing as a practice of taking, essentially of taking notes on and keeping track of the content of what one reads. And this is a practice that um, I would say sort of most, if not all 18th and 19th century, uh, uh, primarily but not exclusively young men practice um, as a way to, uh, uh, in the days before all of our note-taking apps and um, you know our computers, but keep track of what they learned and where they learned it from. And Locke provides the, the best and the most uh, sort of widely used model, not just a theoretical abstract sort of sense of, oh, one ought to take notes, but actually a particular guide that is printed for how one should index these notes. And young Americans, people like Samuel Locke are, are looking um, to Locke and Locke's model and method of commonplacing as a uh, as the best available resource that they have for how to keep track of and organize their their the knowledge that they're acquiring, and then maybe just to give one sort of final example to to flesh out the ways in which Americans are engaging with Locke as this kind of exemplar guide uh, and and model. I think the the example of Benjamin Franklin is illuminating and interesting because Franklin is very, very familiar with, with Locke. And he's familiar with Locke's essay concerning human understanding. He's familiar with Locke's writings on government, the two treatises, but he's also familiar with and spends a lot of time thinking about obscure works of Locke's on how to you know, create sort of um, you know, community-oriented societies for the uh, fostering of and the creation of knowledge. And Franklin turns to Locke and Locke's work um, as inspiration for creating his famous Junto. And uh, I think that there are ways in which, right, this, there's this immediacy and this uh, 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 sort of um, uh, maybe unexpected relevance that Locke, again, not as this abstract, overly uh, intellectual philosopher, but as this kind of everyday guide and guru um, there's this unexpected way in which he he really appears in all aspects and all areas of early American intellectual life and culture. Fascinating. Um, <clears throat> I have two questions though. One of them is possibly that goes beyond the scope of the book, so might be an unfair one. Um, let's start there, <laughs> uh, which is: it, is that a different? Is what's going on in uh, uh, early America? In terms of the, how people are reading and engaging with Locke, different, do you think, do you know, compared to in Britain? Is there something peculiarly American about the kind of almost celebrity status that Locke is being granted and as being an exemplar, as being someone to follow and to guide you through life? I mean, there's a path, there's a sentence somewhere, I think, in the book about from birth through to death, God, Locke is there, that he can, he can, you know, lead the way, he can guide you. Is that a peculiarly American thing? Or is, do you get a sense this is Western Europe and uh, you know this sort of the other side of the Atlantic? It's the same kind of response elsewhere. Mm. So I think in the 18th century, this is something that Americans share with their British counterparts, and I think this is actually one of the reasons that we see such robust debates and conversations emerge during the Revolutionary Era. Uh, over uh, 
proper or improper uses of Locke and in particular Locke's political thought, but there is this shared deep recognition of Locke's authority as sort of epistemologist author of an essay concerning human understanding and his uh, uh, more sort of everyday uh, uh, importance you know, for say something like, um, you know, how to, how best to rear one's children. So the, this, the many aspects of this, of, of Locke's 18th century authority are shared in sort of colonies and, and, and Britain. I think there is particular, and maybe they're one of the uh, ways in which Americans are different or unique are some of the more particular religious uses of Locke's work and Locke's life. And I think we have a sense of, um, well, just to give sort of one example, Locke's essay con uh, uh, letter uh, concerning toleration is the first work of Locke's that's published in the colonies in 1743. And Americans see Locke as speaking very directly, even though he wasn't, but they're reading him as being very relevant for very particular colonial debates that are happening in the context of what we know is the first great awakening. And so we see sort of very uh, 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 sort of intense focus on and interest in Locke's uh, writings on uh, toleration, on the reasonableness of Christianity, on Christian Protestantism as uh, having sort of fundamental, no matter uh, 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 one's uh, sect or um, church having sort of broadly or uh, widely shared uh, points of um, unity and agreement. And we have, we also see Americans being particularly interested, I would say, in Locke's uh, proposed method for scriptural interpretation through putting things into one's own words. And I think that in these ways, we have maybe a sort of special emphasis on some of Locke's religious writings in the 18th century colonies that set the colonies apart in some ways, but then broadly speaking, a much more general and shared understanding of Locke's broader authority uh, that we'll see will sort of come to a head um, and, and serve as the kind of context for and background um, for, as I said, these debates and contestation over Locke's authority in the 1760s and 1770s. Hmm. I don't want to get derailed though with my other question, which was, let me just do it very, very briefly then, which was, uh, is that, I mean, and even the sort of the question itself may not quite be the right way of uh, thinking about it, but was there an emphasis more towards the moral side of Locke's writings about teaching how to um, to be a good person versus um, learning how to be industrious, learning how to use your time well? And maybe you don't separate those two things, but was mm -hmm. there a, a focus on industriousness more than morality or vice versa? Or is, that, uh, is the question flawed in the first place? Well, I, I wouldn't say flawed, but I would say that 18th century Americans would have understood the, those two things as being very much uh, one and the same. And uh, there is harmony between using one's time effectively and efficiently in a sort of Franklinian way, uh, 
and then a sense that in doing so and in being this sort of industrious contributor to society, we'll say, uh, that there was sort of moral value attached to and associated with that. Okay, great, thank you. So let's jump on then, I'll jump, I'll jump forward to uh, the next part of the, the story. So a lot of what you've, uh, as you said earlier, a lot of what you've just described continues on into the early 19th century with Locke sort of being the moral guide uh, to many of his American readers. Uh, which continues on through like, the 1760s through the 1810s, which contradicts a certain understanding of Locke uh, and his influence in America that is that Locke was central, especially to the revolution, the Declaration of Independence, perhaps less so to the Constitution, but that he is, uh, his primary significance in the 18th century is to help inform uh, American revolutionary ideology. We'll come back to why this isn't persuasive when you discuss your later chapters, but could you tell us a little bit about the role that Locke does have in American political debates from, yeah, from 1760 through to 1810? I noted on page 52, to quote you again, that Locke's political importance plummeted immediately after 1776. Please explain, yeah, what's, what's going on? Please explain. <laughs> it does. The American Revolution in no way cements Locke as a political theorist or political thinker in American intellectual life. The 20th century does cement Locke as a political theorist and political thinker. Uh, but, but I mean, it's important to be clear uh, up front that when I, when I talk about the, the nature of Locke's influence and, and, and I talk about Locke being known primarily um, as the author of an essay concerning human understanding and as this moral guide and exemplar, it's not to say that Americans in the 18th century are unaware of or don't engage with Locke's political writings, especially the two treatises of government. Rather, there are two salient and initially surprising to me points uh, that, that emerged from my research into this time period. And the first is that all of their engagement, such that it was 18th century Americans' engagement with Locke's political writings happened in the context of and against their back, the backdrop of this much more sort of richer holistic understanding of Locke's authority. And so when people like James Otis Jr., Thomas Jefferson, Josiah Quincy, John Adams sort of pick your founding father, or you know, when when they're celebrating and deploying Locke's wisdom and brilliance, they're not conceiving of Locke as a narrow political philosopher, author of the second treatise. Mm. Tempting as it is to think that, given how we in the 21st century say conceptualize Locke's significance and importance. The second point is this. So, and this is really what you were getting to in your question. Locke's role in political conversations changes really dramatically between about 1760 and we'll say the 1780s, um, 1790s, 1800s. In the decades leading up to independence, in the decades leading up to 1776, American political figures readily deploy Locke. Uh, and, and, and use Locke to support their calls for political representation, fairer taxation policies, all from their perspective, less imperial overreach from London. And they're using Locke as, as support for these arguments and positions that they're making. And I use this word support very purposefully because across the early or across the 1760s and early 1770s, Americans are not turning to Locke as the source for their thinking, 
about these political questions and issues, say issues of consent-based government, right? They have an entire English legal political tradition, English constitution um, as the source for these ideas. Rather, they're turning to Locke as a kind of argumentative ally who could help lend support to their claims. And as I talk about in the book, right, Locke is a very accessible, a very useful figure because those imperial officials, we'll say, against whom the American colonists are arguing, were also celebrating and revering Locke in many of the same ways. So Locke's relevance and authority is high. He's being used as support for political arguments as a kind of theoretical uh, uh, backing for arguments about what needs to be done in the colonies in the 1760s, 1770s. And this changes really dramatically immediately after, almost simultaneously with independence in 1776. And it changes because Americans become preoccupied with the actual problem, or I should say just the, the problem of state building and governance. And they become, or they begin, I should say, to distinguish in new ways the difference between the principles, the theories of government, and the forms or the administration of government. And they begin to categorize and to read and to understand Locke's political writings, especially, but not only, his second treatise, the two treatises of government, as embodying the, the theoretical, the sort of philosophical side of, of government rather than speaking to uh, or having really any direct relevance for the actual administration uh, of, of government. And this is what in the 1780s, 1790s, this is what Americans are really concerned about. How are we actually going to get this government that we now are, are forming sort of off the ground and running? And I think maybe the, the last thing I'll say is that I think as historians and political theorists and philosophers, right, it's very tempting to take the American founding era, we'll say, as a kind of static time period, the sort of mm. late 18th century. And Locke's transformations, the ways in which Americans change in their uses of and interpretations of Locke's political works from the 1760s to 1800, I think this reminds us that there's a lot of change that's happening in how Americans are, say, grappling with the relationship between theory and practice. At the same time, of course, that the actual sort of structures of government themselves are changing, uh, but there's not this sort of blanket uh, engagement with or understanding of, say, a thinker like Locke and his political works. That sort of um, sense of awareness that they are going through something unprecedented, that they're doing something, yeah, that they are putting together something that hasn't been done um, before. Uh, I th what's interesting then, so I suppose it's, it, as you've described, this following point kind of begins in the 1780s onwards, but it comes to become very prominent in the 19th century that Locke is seen increasingly as a negative example. So during the year of the founding, as you just said, we sort of introduced the criticism that Locke is a, an abstract political thinker and not a particularly helpful one. Mm -hmm. This sort of um, positions him 
into the 19th century increasingly as impractical and speculative and perhaps not necessarily entirely useless, but not where you need to go. Uh, and from that chapter, this is the third chapter we're talking about, um, you uh, spend a lot of time focusing in on the fundamental constitutions of Carolina, which is possibly a text that, um, one, it's, it's debated, well, you, you, you please tell our listeners, um, it's debated about whether extent of Locke's involvement in it, what his role was in putting it together. Also, it's a text I imagine a lot of our listeners might not know very much about per se. So I wondered if you could, um, as you're sort of talking about how Locke officially is treated negatively as a political thinker, um, yeah, what the role of his fundamental uh, constitutions had in that process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So to sort of start this, this story back in, we'll say the 1780s, this is a moment in the late 18th century, and as you articulated so nicely, it, it sort of crescendos in the 19th century and becomes particularly prominent in the 19th century. But beginning in the 18 or 1780s, Americans begin to uh, uh, read and scrutinize the whole range of Locke's political writings and begin to find fault with them because they see what Locke wrote as running counter to and sort of uh, uh, butting up against their seemingly, or I, I, I'm, I'm doing air quotes, but, but you can't see me, <laughs> uh, modern conceptions of political science and a commitment to what it meant to have and, and, and pursue a science of politics. And so in Locke's two treatises, for example, they found instances and, and, and examples of outdated and in their eyes misguided uh, political thinking from distant worlds where people were interested in the origins or nature of government undertook thought experiments like imagining right, the state of nature or the social contract. And in this other work of Locke's, which you mentioned, the Fundamental Constitutions of Carolina, which is a plan of government, and I'll say more about it in a minute, a plan of government for the North American Carolina colony um, in the 1660s. And in this fundamental constitutions for Carolina, 18th and 19th century Americans find sort of a horrifying example of abstract political theorizing failing in practice. So one, this was perhaps one of the most surprising things to me in, 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 in the entirety of my research into Locke's uh, importance and influence in American intellectual life. And this was 19th century Americans fascination with and very careful or at least close engagement with the fundamental constitutions for Carolina. So as you say, the nature of and extent of Locke's involvement with this document uh, is hotly contested and debated today. And uh, Americans in the 19th century uh, were less concerned with the precise question of Locke's authorship or not. Uh, instead, they attributed this, this document, a set of 120 constitutions for the North American colony of Carolina, they attributed this uh, to Locke uh, for the most part. 
today, uh, many historians uh, uh, think and, and, and view Locke as merely the, the sort of scribe or secretary, uh, which he was, um, for the Lord's proprietors of the Carolina colony, among whom was his patron uh, and confidant, uh, Lord Ashley, uh, who would later become the first Earl of Shaftesbury. And uh, so there's a lot of sort of debate today over the extent to which Locke uh, uh, wrote uh, was sort of critical to or somehow involved in the creation of this plan of government for Carolina in the 1660s. In the 19th century, Americans, um, for the most part, assumed Locke's authorship. It was attributed to him beginning in the 18th century, and they took it as a given. But what they didn't take as a given was that uh, the that Locke's involvement in creating this plan of government was a good thing. And instead they debated it and they attacked it and they uh, uh, used it to bring attention to and bring light to, I think was a feature of American political thinking that uh, we tend to assume or take for granted, which is Americans, and their obsession with or interest in uh, political experience and the practice of politics over abstract philosophical political theorizing. And 19th century Americans turned to the fundamental constitutions and they view it as a very, very clear and good example of how you shouldn't have a philosopher, a political theorizer like Locke, create a plan of government for a place to which he's never been and doesn't really know anything. And instead, you should have governments that emerge organically and naturally from the people who are there on the ground. Now, there's a lot to say uh, about the, the uh, uh, sort of puzzle of the fundamental constitutions not being a particularly philosophically uh, dense or even a philosophical document at all, but rather 19th century Americans understood the tension between the, the creator, someone like Locke, having this kind of maybe philosophical expertise, this theoretical expertise, and the tension between that and then what they're actually able to produce when it comes time to create a plan of government and, and, and put that plan of government into practice. Now, when I was reading uh, your fourth chapter on the Gilded Age, it seemed that Americans were turning away from Locke and that his role was uh, becoming, in your words, an increasingly peripheral one. And he goes through a process of historicization as he moves into sort of being of increasingly limited importance for contemporary political debates. He also is increasingly unimportant in American universities, it seems. We, let me know if I'm on the right track here. If uh, yeah, can you explain what seems to be going with these sort of processes of marginalization and historicization in terms of uh, Locke's standing? What's going on? What are the main features of these developments, please? Right, as I write in my book, Locke teeters <laughs> on the sort of brink of irrelevance and obscurity uh, at the dawn of the 20th century. So how and why does this come to be? How does Locke go from being a sort of everyday uh, essential figure for Americans to someone who's teetering on the brink of obscurity and irrelevance? Uh, 
I mean, the answer is, is it's a combination of several things, like many historical problems. And uh, the, the first factor, though, is that Locke becomes, for lack of a better word, old school, something of and for the past. Across the 18th and 19th centuries, as we've been talking about, Americans are not, for the most part, abstracting Locke. Right? They're not thinking of him as this kind of adjectival modifier for something like liberalism. Rather, right, they're, they're thinking with him, they're thinking alongside Locke, they're wrestling with his, his, his works and his ideas. And so beginning in the mid 19th century and certainly by the late 19th century, there are so many more up-to-date relevant approaches of pursuing knowledge or of thinking about how best to strengthen or create society, government, that Locke becomes outdated. He's no longer the newest, best guide in the way that he was in decades and centuries prior. And part of this, of course, is what you gestured to in your question, which is it, it, it's, it's a process of historicization, right? Where we, Americans begin to erect a kind of wall between their present and their past, right? This is when we see the emergence of the discipline uh, of, of history uh, as a kind of uh, a, a field um, in, in the broader field of social science. Uh, uh, research and, and, and teaching. And we begin to see this, this very clear understanding emerge among historians and political science uh, 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 practitioners and members of social science associations and organizations in the 19th century, we begin to see a very clear understanding that what happened in the 17th century, what Locke was writing about with his thought experiments, uh, his, his attachment to say the uh, social contract or construct or thinking about the state of nature, right? That these were things that people did back then that are not things that we in the modern era do as good social scientists. And they are, are so as they're, they're historicizing a walk, they're erecting this kind of barrier, this wall between the way that they're approaching similar questions uh, in the 19th century to the way that Locke was approaching them in the 17th century. And relatedly, and this is a sort of second big point, Locke is becoming less relevant for the sort of day-to-day -day, everyday questions the processes of living uh, one's life, uh, and he's becoming less relevant than he had ever been in the past. And what this means is that as Americans begin to think about what uh, social science practices or what philosophies be there, be there transcendentalism or pragmatism, what what sort of what's been what's developed, what's emerged since Locke was writing in the 17th century. And they begin to think about sort of what's replacing these uh, 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 ways of thinking that Locke embodied centuries ago. They begin to uh, not only relegate Locke to the past, uh, 
but they actually relegate Locke to only certain parts of their everyday present day lives. What I mean by this is in the late 19th century, Americans begin to interact with Locke, not across the duration of their lives, not in spaces outside of college classrooms. Instead, they begin to interact with Locke pretty much primarily in more narrow academic settings. They engage with Locke in the context of their college classes where they're learning about Locke in the context of history of philosophy or history of politics and political thinking. And they engage with Locke for sort of intensely for maybe a span of a couple of years as a college student, not across the duration of their lives from cradle to grave as they did in the 19th century. So Locke's audience is narrowing. The, the, the way in which uh, his, his audience is engaging with him and thinking about him narrows. And the places, the context, the spaces in which Americans are engaging with Locke also narrows. All of this comes to mean that Locke is just simply not useful uh, for 19th century Americans in the ways that he was to earlier generations of Americans in the 18th century and then the first part of the 19th century. So from moral exemplar to object of academic interest, there's a big shift, which then leads on to like the next chapter, if you don't mind us jumping quickly, um, which to my, for my reading was the most surprising one, where he disappears into the recesses of academic cubbyholes, and yet just the next generation later, beginning of the 20th century, Locke again becomes extremely important. But now as a political theorist, more than as a, to use the 19th century word, an epistemologist, right? He, the political theory stuff becomes more prominent. Again, it's, it's just interesting that this happens, that it disappears and then it comes back suddenly. It's also interesting, I found interesting, that I was expecting the Cold War stuff. I was expecting Locke to, I know that story, I, you know, educated the sort of tail end of that story. Um, that's a familiar one. But the idea that he came uh, back online, as it were, the first half of the 20th century seemed very, that was, that was interesting. I was unex, you know, that was unexpected. Could you run us through what's going on uh, prior to 1945? Yeah, so I mean, this, this was surprising to me too. And I think the first thing to underscore about Locke's place in American intellectual life between circa 1900 and 1940 is that it's fundamentally in flux, unstable and uncertain. So there isn't a simple sort of on, off, lock, relevant, lock, irrelevant, sure. lock, relevant switch. So this is a process of turmoil and instability. But what I can say, and what does emerge, is that between circa 1900 and 1940, Americans begin to see light through the cracks of the historicist wall that they built separating past and present. And they begin to see Locke as having a kind of relevance for questions and concerns of the 20th century. But what they don't yet have, and I think this is this is critical, this is, this is what changes in the 1940s. So they have a sense of relevance. They have a sense of, oh, maybe now that Locke's, you know, sort of been properly historicized, we can actually begin to sort of abstract him and draw connections between past and present. But what they don't have is a clear sense of or maybe perhaps more accurately, a clear consensus or agreement on what this relevance is and why Locke matters, right? 
Is Locke a proto-capitalist or is he a proto-socialist? Is he best understood as a kind of small L liberal or an advocate of big L liberalism and so on? So whatever sort of the, 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 the or maybe even just to say one more thing here, they don't yet have a clear consensus on an understanding of whether or not Locke's continued relevance is a good thing, something worth celebrating, or something that that's a little scary and that maybe suggests some things about American intellectual life, American politics, American thought uh, that is is unsettling uh, for for some people. Someone like Merrill Curdy, for example. Oh yes. Yeah, so, let me get back uh, to your more, or you know, just to get back to your more specific question, uh, which is sort of you know really what's what's happening in this first third of the 20th century that creates this space for Locke to be uh, uh, re rediscovered as it were, as, as maybe relevant for questions in a way that he wasn't in the late 19th century, just a generation prior. And I think the answer to this lies both sort of inside Locke and outside Locke. And from the inside, I think somewhat counterintuitively, right, sort of once Locke is thoroughly historicized and sort of safe on a dusty shelf, uh, it frees him, as I said, to transcend time and space and become this kind of timeless, lasting influence in the ethers that's connecting Americans in the 1930s who are concerned about questions of laissez-faire capitalism with 17th century questions that they're seeing as being very similar. From the outside, the sort of not Locke specific side of things. This is also a time in the 1910s and 1920s when we have increasing attention, particularly around the First World War. We have increasing attention to thinking about um, the, this concept of Western civilization and intellectual and cultural and political traditions that transcend national boundaries and transcend time. And so Americans and people, as they begin to think about the, the the possibility of a thinker like Locke and then Locke in particular having continued relevance, they're doing so against this backdrop of thinking about a concept, say, of Western civilization. Fantastic. Um, if the early 20th century is more of a period of, of flux and sort of uncertainty about what Locke means, uh, by the end of the Second World War and the you begin in the American century, halfway through the century, beginning of the American <laughs> century, and like the Cold War kicking in, that 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 then gets narrowed down, and then Locke is increasingly associated with, in your words, democracy, liberalism, and capitalism. And you describe in this chapter, I, I yeah, I find this absolutely fascinating. You describe in this chapter the reinvention of Locke as the symbolic and ideological essence of the American political tradition. And we see like the second treatise of government being taken seriously, perhaps more seriously than it's ever been taken. Mm. Um, can you explain how and why this reinvention uh, takes place? I think there's a, in the background, it's a very big question about what the American political tradition is. But yeah, what happens to Locke? How does he become so central? Well, in short, Americans in the 1940s, 1950s were worried that communists that the Soviet Union with Marx and Lenin 
had a stronger or at least a clearer political tradition than, than they had. And in the course of my research, I discovered that Locke and his two treatises, especially the second treatise, became useful for Americans in new ways. And it be, they became useful for Americans who were trying to articulate both for themselves and for a global audience, articulate and then defend this new concept, right? This concept of not just a, but the American political tradition that distinguished the United States or, and maybe the West more broadly from the Soviet Union. And as part of this process, as part of this quest for the creation of political tradition with solid intellectual foundations that they could trace to specific thinkers, someone like Locke, they distilled Locke. And this is, I think, really critical. So in, in, during this period, in the 1940s and 1950s, Americans are distilling Locke into a couple of key choice passages from the second treatise. And then they're using these passages, life, liberty, property, and his perceived influence on Americans past and present to begin to, to answer longstanding, big, important questions about the nature of American politics and especially American, what they saw, to be clear, what they saw as American political exceptionalism, namely the question, right, of why American liberal democracy seemed, at least they hoped, immune to threats of totalitarianism, fascism, communism. And so the result of all of this is that by the 1950s, for Americans, Locke is best understood as the political thinker author of the second treatise, and as a kind of icon, a kind of political abstraction connected to a tradition of small L liberalism, which many people understood as being sort of core and center of the American political tradition. And everything else, the sort of wide range of Locke's thought and writings, expertise on education and human understanding, or commonplace bookkeeping, cultivating silkworms, whatever it was that fascinated 18th century Americans say about Locke, all of this was set aside and forgotten. And maybe I'll just say one more thing here, right? We see a shift in the 18th century when Americans turned to Locke in the 1760s and 1770s and, and engaged with his political thought, right? They did so both against this very rich context, this rich backdrop. They also used Locke as support for, not as the source for their ideas. In the 20th century, Americans begin to view Locke as having been the source for, not just support for, but the source for American ideas uh, about whether or not it's private property, individual liberty, liberty, representative government. And they begin to see Locke as the sort of fountain of the spring for this American political tradition and its commitments to these ideologies. And this is very new. This is something that did not exist in the 18th and the 19th centuries and emerges out of this place in some ways of, of, of both insecurity and confidence in the 1940s and 1950s. A couple of questions, I suppose, about this. I liked the idea, this is not a question, it's just a, an observation. I liked the idea that 
there, there were lots of quotes of, of American political commentators who felt under threat by the fact that the Marxists, the Soviet Union had Das Kapital. They had their mm -hmm. book and the American capitalists needed their book. But it's the idea that you should be scared of Das Kapital. I don't think, I don't know. <laughs> That's a book that people have on their shelves and never read. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was interesting that they needed to, <laughs> they were worried about that. But the questions would be, one observation was this happened really quickly. It seemed to realize the American political tradition was created over the space of a couple of years in the late 1940s, <laughs> early 1950s. Um, is that is that sort of correct uh, reading of, of that character? But also that um, the question of who's leading this, who's who's pushing this interpretation forward, uh, what's the sort of the role of the government and so on, um, given that it is such a a historical, as you you know, a narrowing of what Locke could be into, um, so yeah, a very kind of limited take takeaway what uh, he had to offer. Yeah, who's driving it forward? Who's doing it? And um, what's the what's the relationship sort of between American universities and the, you know, I suppose, the federal government? Yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. Right, the sort of invention of the American political tradition and the creation of Locke as the as the sort of leader and 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 source for this. Uh, I mean, this is. Uh, it emerges very quickly in the 1940s, really during and then immediately following World War II. But it's building on this space that's created in the early 20th century. So it doesn't emerge out of nothing, mm -hmm. but it does emerge very quickly. And it's, it's surprising in, in seeing it appear in the historical record. To the question of who's driving it, I, it's a very joint, uh, collaborative effort, I might say, among government leaders, politicians, journalists, people who are bringing, say, uh, I, I think of someone like John Chamberlain, who's a prolific book reviewer in the night in, in in the mid twentieth century, and he's reviewing books for periodicals, newspapers like the New York Times, and he's finding ways in no matter what book he's reviewing to bring the conversation <laughs> back to Locke and the American yeah. political tradition. So it's a collaborative effort among politicians, journalists, and uh, academics, people who are teaching uh, political philosophy, political science, uh, the history of political theory, uh, in college classrooms. And it's emerging uh, in some ways, all, all of these emerging sort of simultaneously in these different realms and people in the academy and in the government and uh, our journalists are, are, are uh, uh, responding to and building off of one another in this very, Again, I keep coming back to this this concept of sort of collaboration. It's not a top down or a bottom up. It's a everywhere, all at the same time. Hmm. Bits of that chapter do, um, at the same time, sort of continue and argument. They may be flattened a little bit by in the nature of the sort of interview medium. I've had to we've had to flatten the sort of uh, a lot of the complexities that you might have. As I'm sorry, the book does have. Um, I was just thinking about the, the use of Locke during the civil rights debates. Robert C. Bird, is that his name, in 1964? Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I wonder if you could yeah, tell us a little bit about 
the various different ways that Locke is deployed. He is now he's now we'll get to the idea that he's sort of a a right wing, a fundamentally right wing thinker. But in the fifties and sixties and seventies, there's still a, he's being deployed in different ways by different sides. Um, you know, I wonder if we could go into that a little bit. Right. So at the minute that there is a sense of consensus among Americans that Locke is foundational uh, to their political tradition, he's turned into this kind of partisan pawn, but he's not used or understood as being important for uh, uh, conversations only, or he's not understood as being important only for those on the political right. He's also being used and understood is understood as being important for those on the political left. And as you say, this emerges very clearly in debates in the United States Congress over civil rights legislation in the 1960s in particular. And we have both opponents of and supporters of civil rights legislation, federal government, using Locke and bringing Locke to bear on arguments that they're making. And some of the really interesting conversations that are happening uh, in Congress on the floor of the US House and Senate, Congress people are, are, are debating the minutia of whether or not Thomas Jefferson, you know, did Thomas Jefferson change Locke's property to happiness on purpose? Or by <laughs> happiness, did Thomas Jefferson actually just mean Locke's property? And this is when, right, this is a, a, a long standing now since the 1960s sort of question and debate. And we see politicians in the context of their debates over civil rights legislation, going back and trying to sort of puzzle through and figure out what does Jefferson mean? Is it different from what Locke meant? And in some ways, I, it's actually, I, I, it's inaccurate to say they're going back and trying to figure out because they're just picking whatever argument is uh, most conducive to the particular point mm. that they want to make, um, either in favor of or against uh, civil rights legislation. This is the, the point always with these interviews where I apologize to both the author and the listener. We've had to go so quickly over so much. Um, we will we'll come now to the sort of the final chapter Concurrently with the establishment of Lockean liberalism, maybe we'll talk about Lockean liberalism in a second, but concurrently to sort of the establishment of Locke, this canonical figure in the American political tradition, is the challenge to that, is the criticism of it. Um, and then this final chapter, you sort of go through some of the most prominent uh, critics. Leo Strauss has a big role to play here, but also the critique of, again, as soon as it's established within a, you know, half a generation or generation, uh, is being uh, challenged here by the new contextualist histories of the American political tradition. I think, of, you know, Gordon Wood here, for example. Can you tell us about, uh, yeah, what's happening? How is Locke's canonical status being uh, challenged from like the 1960s onwards? Yeah, so I think your question, right, with his attention to the challenges that Locke's reputation is facing from within sort of political philosophy, uh, uh, and, 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 and political science departments, we'll say, and then also the challenges it's facing from those in the historical profession. Does a nice job of sort of introducing, right, the many different ways in which Locke is mm. coming sort of under attack, but in ways that actually end up cementing and solidifying his reputation as 
a, uh, a canonical figure for um, the American political tradition and American liberalism. So um, it may come as a surprise to some listeners, right, that the first challenge is really to the myth of Locke's magnificence, the myth of Locke's liberalism come not from the left where we might expect them to be coming from today mm. in the 21st century, but rather from the right, from conservative political philosophers. You mentioned Leo Strauss, Wilmore Kendall, Russell Kirk, and others, right, who are seeking to dismantle and challenge the misguided, in their eyes, obsession with Locke that mainstream America has. And their challenges are multifaceted, but broadly speaking, right, they push back against what they see as American society's privileging of atomistic individualism over, over sort of deeper societal bonds, commitments to tradition rather than, you know, whatever is new and hip in the, in the sort of 1960s. And they, they see these, uh, elements of American society and American culture and American politics that they find problematic. They see these as originating with, or at least being tied to Americans' obsession with, with Locke. Now there's also a surprising and unexpected, even ironic, as I talk about element of the challenge that Locke's reputation faces, um, and this time facing that it faces from historians. And this is one that uh, someone like Dan Rogers and, and others have explored in their work on the so-called Republican turn in American historical scholarship in the 1970s and 1980s, right? So during this period, historians of the American Revolution and founding era are challenging, right, the centrality of Locke in the American political tradition. They're identifying other more Republican, small r, sort of civic Republican influences on the founders and framers. Unintentionally, of course, this move actually, this move to decenter Locke actually cements Locke more sort of or deeper, cements Locke more closely to, I don't know, mixing my metaphors, <laughs> um, but cements Locke more closely to liberalism and Lockean liberalism as, and, and cements Lockean liberalism, right, as the chief leading operating philosophical framework for the founders and framers. So at the same time that they're trying to dismantle it and actually making Lockean liberalism something that's worth debating, they're cementing it and they're solidifying it and they're making it a thing. And at the same time, though, so against the backdrop, at the same time that Lockean liberalism and sort of the, the Lockean consensus, as we might call it, the same time that this is coming under attack from the right, from certain conservative thinkers, people like Leo Strauss, and at the same time that it's coming under attack from uh, his historians who are interested in, in a more contextual, more robust understanding of 18th century political thought, at the same time there is emerging a new, very potent strain of political thinking that hitched its wagon to the still rising star of Locke. Uh, and this is libertarianism, uh, in particular with the philosopher Robert Nozick. Um, Nozick's playing a crucial, critical leading role here. And so thanks in large part, right, to the still growing sort of attachment libertarian thinkers had toward Locke in the late 20th century. By the end of the 20th century, Locke is secure 
both as this adjectival modifier for liberalism and libertarianism, and, and, and as a foundation for the American political tradition, despite efforts in really beginning in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s to challenge it or dismantle it. He's so secure, right, that when I start my my research and my, my investigations into Locke in the early 2010s, I assume that the conversations and the debates and the discussions, but just the general sense of, of, of Locke as being somehow connected to liberalism, somehow connected to libertarianism, I assumed that these had always been the most pressing questions that Americans were confronting and engaging with. And my research uh, has, has showed this um, to be quite otherwise. And that this version of Locke, as fixed as it is today, and debated as it is today, that this version of Locke is a product of the 20th century, not the 18th or 19th centuries. But I think that's a, an excellent place for us to wrap up our conversation about your book. I suppose I have an interest in where you think, this would have to be a very quick answer, I'm afraid, but where you think Locke, stand, where, he, where he stands now, um, what the future, the immediate future might hold uh, for Locke. There's a lot of... Um, he doesn't come out very well in terms of colonialism, in terms of his sort of easy acceptance of slavery. There's there's uh, there's some issues there. But yeah, what's what where where does he stand in the twenty twenty three? Do you think? Indeed, I don't think there's an ever going to be again a sort of easy, simple acceptance or an easy, simple rejection of Locke, given how strongly both those on, to, to oversimplify things, the political left and the political right, either celebrate or revile him. What I do think is that if the past is any lesson, that debates over and engagement with and, and, and turning to Locke, all of this is not something that's just something of the past. It's something that will continue well on into the future. And as a historian, I hesitate and and, and do not uh, wish to predict what shape these <laughs> conversations will take, but I am confident that Locke will play a role and continue to play a role um, in, in the way that people think about uh, themselves and think about um, their societies and what creates and contributes to the flourishing of a society. Thank you, Professor Claire Rydell-Arsonis. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Robin.